good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jake Bernstein, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of Secrecy World, Inside the Panama Papers Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite. On April 3, 2016, media organizations around the world began publishing stories drawn from the confidential archives of a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca. The trove of documents known as the Panama Papers included evidence touching on everything from arms trafficking to oil and gas exploration to international soccer. Bernstein, a member of the international team of reporters who broke the story, has continued to report on the documents of the Panama Papers, exposing how shell companies operate, how the ultra-wealthy uses them to evade taxes, and how they provide cover for illicit activities on a massive scale. Jake Bernstein has written for the Washington Post, Bloomberg, The Guardian, Vice, and many more, and has also appeared on the BBC, NBC, CNN, PBS, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jake. Thank you so much, Catherine. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. All right, well, I guess we want to start out, what is, what is the importance of the Panama Papers? Uh, why, how, and, and first of all, and how did you first get involved? Um, why do we need to know about this? Uh, I mean, that's a great question, right? Uh, I can say that since the, the, the Panama Papers uh, were published uh, in, in April of 2016, uh, tax authorities worldwide have recovered more than $500 million. That's more than half a billion dollars that was hidden in tax havens and secret bank accounts uh, that were exposed by the release of these documents. And, I, and what that really says is, is, is something very important, which is that this is something that affects us all, this shadow economy. You know, most people think that this is something that's happening, you know, someplace else, someplace with palm trees and uh, warm breezes in some tropical island. And in fact, uh, we are dealing with the consequences of this system every day. It's in skyrocketing property prices in our major cities, you know, where foreigners are using secret anonymous shell companies to buy uh, property uh, as investments, sometimes uh, to launder money, and uh, it's driving up the property prices for the people who live there. But it's also in the fact that our government doesn't have enough money for infrastructure, for health care, for police, for stuff like that, because a lot of it is disappearing through tax avoidance and tax evasion. So it's something that actually affects all of us, um, but because it's hidden, we never really got to see it. And I sort of became exposed to this uh, in, uh, in 2015 when a friend of mine who was a senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists called me and said, hey, you know, we're beginning to work on a project, and uh, I can't tell you anything about it on the phone, but you have to come to Washington, D.C. and meet with the head of ICIJ in person. So I went, and he told me that they had begun to receive this leak. It was really just the, the first you know, a few thousand documents, what would end up being 11.5 million documents in total. And, uh, but they had already identified uh, the prime minister of Iceland who had a secret company and uh, the people who were incredibly close to Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. And so, you know, he asked me if, if I would like to join the team 
sort of going through these documents and, and, and exploring them and, and seeing what they had to say and writing stories about them. And, of course, I signed up immediately. So when you go through these documents, what exactly do you have to do? I mean, when you join the team, what, how does that work? Oh, it's, oh, this is such a great question. It, 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 ICIJ had already done several leak investigations uh, of, this, of this sort, although nothing of this magnitude. And so they had learned from their previous experiences uh, we end up being uh, more than 340 journalists from around the world working on this project, although there was probably about 100 who, who actively you know, worked through the documents. So it's a huge task. I mean, think about it. There's 11.5 million, more than 11.5 million documents, and they come in all kinds of formats, right? There's audio files, and there's, there's uh, TIFF files, and PDFs, and emails, and, and all kinds of different things, right? PowerPoint. So... They had to, to make all of these documents searchable, which was a huge task within itself. And I talk about how they went about doing this in my book, Secrecy World. And then they created this sort of secret confidential Facebook page. It was, it was not actually Facebook. It was, it was a, another software that they used where we could all meet, you know, clandestinely, completely confidentially, and begin to share our findings. So, you know, I would find something, I would find, you know, companies related to, uh, you know, the king of Saudi Arabia. And I would throw that up on, on this thing that we call the global IHUB. And, uh, and then someone else would find something related to that, and they would throw it up. And then we would add to it, you know, and, and maybe we needed more information about this specific company, and there was a lawsuit involving that. So someone would go and find that lawsuit, and then they would add that. And slowly we began to put this jigsaw puzzle together and form this larger picture about how this offshore world works and, uh, and who uses it. Now, were you ever afraid for your life? or was I mean, you're talking about people, you know, the king of Saudi Arabia, and then you're also talking about the heads of state and celebrities and movie stars and billionaires and people that, you obviously, that you're going to be exposing. So is it, how risky is it? For you, or was it? Were you afraid? I mean, we were we were all on we were all on high alert. Now there were there were participants in the project who 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 run real real risks. Uh, fortunately, in the United States, uh, the dangers are are, are still not quite uh, as extreme. But for partners in Russia, for partners in Egypt, um, the, there were Panamanian reporters who were involved in this, and Ecuadorian reporters. They didn't use their bylines. They didn't put their names on their stories because it was so dangerous to publish in their countries. Um, so there, there were risks, but for an American reporter, not so much. But just how profound and, and serious those risks were uh, became apparent a few months ago when a woman named Daphna Caruana Galicia in Malta, she's a blogger, and her son is actually a member of, of ICIJ, he's a staffer for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Well, Daphne went out to her car one afternoon and turned on the ignition, and it exploded. And, uh, and she was brutally killed, assassinated, uh, for her work. And a lot of the stuff that she was doing was pointing out the corruption uh, that was found in the Panama Papers and that touches the highest levels of the Maltese government. And uh, Malta is a member of the European Union, so none of us expected uh, that it would get uh, that serious. But it was clearly, the assassins were clearly sending a message to investigative journalists everywhere. So it is a serious concern, um, not, not so much 
for 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 us in in America still uh, at the moment we're, we're, we just have to suffer being accused of, of putting out fake fake news and and being attacked on Twitter and, and stuff like that. It hasn't reached the level where where there's physical intimidation. Uh, fortunately, do you think Jake that the American people really understand or have an understanding of how important this? this investigative journalism that, that what you've uncovered and like the impact that that has on our economy for instance or maybe the this tax law that was just uh, our new tax laws uh, that were just implemented implemented like this you know the connection between that and this kind of stuff this illicit money um I'm calling it money laundering but uh, that, that's happening around the world that we're involved in that are wealthy, the ultra-wealthy in this country are involved in? I mean, I think it's a great question. This is in part why I wrote the book Secrecy World, is that I really wanted people to, to make the connections. Um, I, I don't think that we have quite made the connections in the, in the way that we need to. Um, I mean, it's, 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 uh, the U.S. Treasury estimates that uh, something like $300 billion a year is laundered to the United States you know, from illicit activities. So, I mean, it's a serious issue. And the United States itself is one of the biggest tax havens through Delaware, through Wyoming, through Nevada. They are pumping out, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of these companies, these anonymous shell companies. And uh, the U.S. government has complained about this. I mean, they feel that uh, uh, Russian mafia and transnational gangs uh, are using Delaware companies to launder money and in furtherance of, of their uh, illegal schemes. So it's a real problem. And, and no, I don't think Americans have, have fully made the connections, uh, not, certainly not in the same way that Europeans have. I mean, I think Europeans are a little bit more concerned about their fellow citizens paying taxes. They've also, since the financial crisis, suffered extreme austerity. I mean, there's been severe cutbacks in Europe of, uh, of their social welfare system. And so they are very sensitive to the idea that, uh, that, that the, the, the Mega wealthy amongst them are not paying their fair share, and and, and they've uh, they've greeted these um, these uh, these leaks uh, with much more seriousness than Americans have. But uh, again, that's that's kind of why I wrote the book, Secrecy World. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, do these transactions necessarily have to be illegal, or can they be legal? And, and like, give us an example no, of both, for instance. Yeah. No, that, that's an, that's an that's an absolutely. Very smart insight. There, there, a lot of this is perfectly legal. And in fact, some people believe that the, the true, you know, the, the true problem is in the legal stuff, not, not so much the illegal stuff. So, you know, you, there are lots of reasons why you might want to have uh, an anonymous shell company uh, located in a tax haven. You know, you might, you might be doing business in multiple countries and, uh, and you need to, to base it in one place. And obviously, you want to base it in a place where uh, where, the, where the tax hit will be the lowest, right? There's not ne- something that's necessarily uh, wrong with that. Um, you might uh, uh, you might uh, want to hide your business um, from business partners, right? You're doing some stuff, but you, you want to keep other stuff secret. So you might you might want to use the system for that. Um, you know, there's stuff that's legal but maybe morally questionable. You have a mistress and you want to use an anonymous shell company to buy her an apartment or something like that. So, or there are people in the developing world in, in, in high crime areas 
who are worried about kidnapping, and, uh, and they want to keep their assets a secret for that reason. So these are all things where, you know, you could perhaps make the case uh, that, that this is, is, is proper in some way or certainly legal. You know, the so in that case, you'd be saying that this is it's legal. It's that it would be perhaps the system that allows you to do this, which is not a good thing. It's not necessarily the person themselves is doing something illegal, but um, it's just our tax system that allows that to to happen. That is exactly right. And the biggest users of that system are are, are corporations. You know, they're the ones who keep this super highway of underground money flowing, right? So. For example, the U.S., by one estimate, loses $70 billion a year in tax revenue from shifting corporate profits to tax havens. Now, most of that is, is, is ostensibly legal, right? So, yeah, that, that's the legal side of it. And then the same, company, the same kinds of companies, the same pathways, the same secret bank accounts and tax havens are also used by criminals who use this anonymity to launder money and to... You know, we found in the Panama Papers drug traffickers, Ponzi schemers, uh, fraudsters of every type and color um, who are all using the same system uh, uh, because they also want that, that secrecy. So when the, so and most of this occurs um, in in the like in the British Virgin Islands. Is this where most of these these banks are or most of these transactions are happening? Well, the British Virgin Islands is a big player in this, and Mossack Fonseca, the Panamanian law firm behind the, <coughs> me, behind the Panama Papers, yeah. kind of put the British Virgin Islands on the map. Um, they were the ones who, who, who really sort of popularized it to the point where in China, for a while at least, uh, when people bought an anonymous shell company, no matter where in the world they bought it, uh, they would refer to it as a BVI for the British Virgin Islands, because it was so, that, that place was so popular. But the British Virgin Islands is certainly not the only one doing this. And it's also happening in the Seychelles, and it's happening in the Cayman Islands, and in the Bahamas. It's happening in Dubai and Singapore. Um, this is really a, a global network. And, uh, and it's not just the United Kingdom uh, and their territories that are involved in it. I mean, again, it's the United States, Delaware and, and Nevada and Wyoming. Um, so it's, it's, it's lots of different jurisdictions that are, that are involved in this. But the biggest players, the people who really keep this working and, 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 and kind of write the rules for the entire thing, are the United Kingdom and the United States. How do we keep this? I mean, your book is so important because you really have to keep up the dialogue. I mean, and I think we said this in the beginning of the interview. I'm not so sure people, even when I knew I was going to be interviewing you, I was kind of asking some of the younger generation, the millennials, what they thought about this. You know, and I think it gets past them. It goes by them. I mean, people over 40, yes, but then the, the, the younger people, I don't, think that they really see or understand the impact of what all of this has on our economy and their lifestyle and their future. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's, I mean, uh, millennials flock to cities, right? So, I mean, I live in New York. Uh, we have, we all have friends in Los Angeles and San Antonio and Miami and places like that. Well, if you're starting out, if you're a young person, it's really hard to buy an apartment in those places. They're really expensive. Property values are really, really high. In fact, rents are really high. And so much of that is being driven by this secret world. And people don't make the connections because it's all hidden. So that's why 
these leak investigations, um, you know, are so important because it really it allows us to look at it at a macro level in a way that was just simply not possible before this kind of uh, journalism, you know, came into the fore. Was, were you shocked as you were going through the, as, you, as you were doing this, as you were doing your investigations? I mean, was this shocking? And perhaps what was the most shocking thing that, that for you that you found? I mean, I was shocked by the scale of it. I was shocked by, by, by how prevalent it was. And I was shocked by the, I mean, what's wonderful about uh, this leak is that um, they were very open in their emails and very candid, you know, <coughs> excuse me, talking about what they were doing. For, so, for example, one lawyer, you know, told his bosses at, uh, at Mossack Fonseca, well, you know, 95% of what we do is, is, is providing uh, the ability of people to, to avoid paying taxes. You know, so that I was, I was sort of surprised by the candor of it. And then, of course, you know, it was, it was kind of amazing just to find one, you know, bold-faced name after another, you know, as we went through the documents. Um, one of the stories that I worked on uh, the most, and, and that I think is probably one of the most consequential ones, um, was, uh, was what we found surrounding Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, the head of Russia, the, the prime minister of Russia, the president of Russia. He's been both. Um, you know, people have long suspected that Vladimir Putin is a multi-billionaire, that he might in fact be one of the richest people in the world, but his acknowledged salary is, is actually quite infinitesimal. You know, he says he doesn't have very much money at all. And nobody has really believed that, but no one has ever been able to sort of pinpoint exactly how much he has or, or how, you know, how this works, this, this kleptocracy that he has established in Russia. And what we found was something quite extraordinary. We found this whole network of offshore companies uh, that were tied to oligarchs and people very close to Vladimir Putin, including the godfather of his eldest daughter, who happens to be a classical cellist, who has no business experience and has actually publicly said, I'm not a businessman, I don't have anything to do with business. And yet we found him the ostensible owner of two shell companies that were doing very sophisticated financial dealings. One involved a takeover of one of the largest truck manufacturers in Russia, and the other was connected to uh, some other companies through which Billions of dollars was flowing, including money from state-controlled banks in Russia. So all of this activity, billions of dollars sort of floating around these, uh, these companies and, and sort of questionable payments from one shell company to another and buying of property and yachts and all that stuff, and all of it connected to Vladimir Putin. And, I mean, we were stunned. We were stunned to actually see it in, in plain writing, you know, exactly how they were operating uh, this whole system, this whole kleptocracy that Russia has become. And, okay, and now what about the United States? What, what did you have any in terms of, of individuals here in, this, in, in the United States? Any surprises? Well, it's interesting. Um, there were not as many Americans in the Panama Papers. Um, uh, but oddly enough, there seemed to be a large number of criminal Americans. So we found a lot of dodgy people, including people like the, one of the guys behind the largest mortgage fraud in Alaska's history, you know, stuff like that. Um, but the, 
there was a subsequent leak investigation called the Paradise Papers that the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists did. This centered around a law firm called Appleby, which was based in Bermuda. And uh, Appleby uh, actually had a lot more Americans. Uh, they had about 31,000 American clients. And Appleby was uh, a little bit more proper than, uh, than, than Mossack Fonseca, um, they uh, they were more high end, um, uh, and so uh, they were also not as uh, as, as uh, loquacious in their emails, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but but they did the same kinds of things, right? The same schemes for tax avoidance and uh, and using trusts and companies and foundations to hide your financial activities. And in the Appleby leak, we saw exactly what you would expect. We saw high-level Republican donors and high-level Democratic donors, uh, campaign donors. We saw a number of people connected to the Trump administration, including the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, uh, who had a number of uh, shell companies, including one um, that was perhaps not properly disclosed when he became Commerce Secretary and that he kept uh, even after he joined the administration and that did business with a company affiliated with uh, Putin's son-in-law. So, you know, lots of, of stuff like that. Uh, I mean, it's basically anyone who is super wealthy, uh, you know, there's a good chance that they are using this system in one way or another. Uh, fascinating. I mean, uh, and I want to make sure we we only have like two minutes left. So I, because uh, you know, I want my audience to go out and buy the book "Secrecy World: Inside the Panama Papers Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite." Jake Bernstein, a great book. And Jake, um, I mean, we covered a little bit, but there's so much more, obviously, in the book and for people and for readers. But um, what websites can we go to? You can buy the book online, Amazon bookstores everywhere, but also websites that you could direct us to for more information about sure. you and like, the work you're doing? Yeah. Yes, of course. My web, personal website is jakebernstein.net, N-E-T, dot net, not dot com, jakebernstein.net, and that's B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. And you can also go to icij.org, which has a wonderful uh, website that uh, even has a searchable public database where you can look up zip codes and uh, people and see if they have anonymous uh, shell companies in these leaks. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great talking to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Catherine. Have a great day. Thanks. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is writer, nurse, Kate Genovese, uh, author of Hat Tricks from Heaven, the story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. A golden boy grows up in a loving family surrounded by friends, effortlessly sailing through high school, college, and promotions career. What could be wrong? For Kate Genovese's son, with being captain of the hockey team, came six surgeries for sports-related injuries that resulted in an escalating opioid addiction. This is the incredible story of a woman's roller coaster ride as she moves from the nonstop joy of mothering to the realization that her son has become a participant in a deadly ap- epidemic that can happen to anyone. Kate Genovese, author of three published books, as I said, is a registered nurse and also a Reiki healer who continues to benefit from the healing aspects of writing. Welcome to the show, Kate. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. One of the things that, uh, that's been said about your, uh, talking about your son and his opioid addiction, that he was a golden boy, grew up in a loving family, um, as I said in the beginning, you know, surrounded by uh, a supportive family. How does this happen, in, or how did this happen in your family? Well, you know, we, we never thought this would happen to Gino. Um, his name's Christopher, but... Most everybody calls him Gino, so I'll refer to him as that. You know, he was well-liked. He had lots of friends. Um, we have a, lo- a big and large family, a lot of cousins. And, um, you know, the addiction does run in my family. My um, Some of my uncles uh, were alcoholics. And, and we just never, for some reason, expected Gino to turn out like this or, I shouldn't say that, have this disease. He just didn't seem the type, whatever that means. Um, but he 
was a good hockey player. He got a scholarship to a high school and a partial scholarship to college, but on hockey. But he um, ended up in his first year of high school. He also played football. He um, had knee surgery. He um, had an injury. So that started it all off. And he progressively had three more surgeries in high school and three in college, three in his knees and three in his shoulders. Now, during this time, he wanted to continue to play. Um, we, After his fourth surgery, we suggested he just stop and, and just forget about it, but he was insistent. He, he loved it. And he also loved the medication, which we didn't realize. He was getting Percocets. He was getting them prescribed to him by the doctors. And um, the first time I realized he did have a problem because he did, he lived away at, at, from home. He lived in a, a dorm in high school. He had come home for the weekend after one of his surgeries and asked to get more Percocet from the doctor. Now, this was three or four weeks into his shoulder surgery, and I, I said, you know, no, I, that's not a good idea. You, you don't need them. You've got to start here on, on some Motrin. But he was so insistent, and the doctor was as well. He, I called the doctor, and I, I was adamant about it. I didn't want him to have any more uh, narcotics. And he said, you don't realize how painful shoulder surgery is. He's a hockey player. He needs this medication. Don't be a helicopter mother. And those were his exact words. It was so belittling. And I just And I want to tell you there because... I just got to. I want to interrupt for a minute because it's. This is the doctor talking, actually, not to just a um, ordinary citizen. He's talking to a nurse. You're a nurse, so you are professionally. You have some besides being um, a mother, but you have some insight into the effects that this, this drug is having on your son. And the doctor totally dismissed you, even given that. Totally dismissed me, and he knew I was a nurse. I worked in the same place, the same facility as him. But he just went right over me and, and said, Gino needs this. If he's going to play, he needs these pain medicines. So I just kind of, I gave in reluctantly, but I gave in, which I shouldn't have and wished I hadn't. But um, <clears throat> I went home and told my husband, and he just said, well, he's not going to be on them that long, and let's keep an eye on it. And I called the school nurse and told her to, keep, to hold them. That's the best I could do. I said, could you hold them and just give them to him as an eat them? So that's what happened. And um, later on, um, after college, now he doesn't have any prescription. He doesn't have hockey to fall back on, and he still needs his medication. So that's when we found out that he had an addiction. He was about 25, 26 years old, and he was um, living in Worcester, which is where he went to college. And, um, you know, he's living a normal life to some degree. He had a girlfriend and lots of friends, and one of his roommates so given called that, us. given that, you said that he's living a normal life, and I think that's really important because, you know, he, as you say, he has a girlfriend, he's college, living on his own. What would you say, how do you recognize, say, some of these signs and symptoms that your, your child um, or has an addiction problem. I mean, what would you say to other parents? How do you, you know, how, what, what, 
how would you, especially yeah. if they're not living at home, makes it a little bit more difficult. So what would you look for? That's really a very good question. I mean, a couple of times, his, just looking at him physically, the way he was acting, his, uh, you know, he was being giddy and silly or the exact opposite, he'd, he'd be mean. He wouldn't be the Gino I knew. He'd start to swear. He'd, he'd um, you know, slam doors, things like that. Um, but I think most parents, with the kids living at home, they would have picked it up much quicker than we did. Um, we didn't pick it up as fast because he didn't live at home. But once he came home with us because his roommate uh, from college called us up and told us that he had a problem, um, you know, they were worried about him, so he, he called us. And so we, at this point, he had a job and he um, was living in an apartment, so we said, listen, you're going to live at home with us for a while. This is scary. This is big stuff. I mean, this is when the, um, you know, the opioid world was coming into being, so to speak. And so he came and lived with us, and that's when it all started. We noticed um, car accidents. Uh, he lost his license. He lost his job. He lost his some friends. He lost his girlfriend, which was huge because he was, you know, they were talking marriage, but this is how powerful drugs are. He lost Now, when you talk girl. about how powerful the drugs are, Kate, like for you as a family or you and your husband, denial is pretty powerful, too. I mean, especially, obviously, as parents. And I think that, in my experience, sometimes the first thing parents do uh, uh, expresses denial, like it really can't, you don't want it to be happening, so you sort of uh, try to overlook things. And even though your gut is telling you, I know there's something wrong, but it's too scary to admit it. Um, right. It, it, yeah. Yeah, that is true. Lots of parents are in denial. We were in denial a little bit with um, our other son. He had um, an addiction, not not to drugs, but to alcohol. And we were in denial with him. With Gino, we weren't. I mean, it was just came right into our face. Somebody told us, and we we had we had to look at it. I mean, he was um, going broke. He was stealing. He was losing money. He was he was he was, he jumped from a nice kid to this intense addict that you would see in jail. That's how bad it was. So we had to do something about it, and that's when we took him home and tried to get him help. But, of course, at this time, he, he slowly lost everything, as I said. He slowly lost his job. He slowly lost his car because of accidents and, he, um, and his girlfriend, which was big because, as I said, we thought they might get married. And he was losing us. He was losing his parents. We didn't know what to do. He wouldn't go to a um, he wouldn't go to a facility to get help. He he wanted to um, just go to AA meetings, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, or NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous. He didn't want to be institutionalized. And every time we mentioned this, he would he would run. He would leave our house and go stay with some friends, and then he'd come back and he'd be sober for two weeks, and then. You know, it was a bad, bad cycle. 
It was so, so they call you know, this a family illness. They call the they call addictions a family illness for some of the just as you're describing it because, and yeah. I, I think one of the yeah and one of the problems at least as a social worker that I see with is that getting people to get help and to get into treatment is really the most obviously the most difficult, which is what you were having. You, you, you could doesn't seem like you were able to do this, and I think like parents also have difficulty with. Um, giving in to the to their their child or their the, the kid who has the problem, you know, you're supposed to have you know tough love and but you have to be right. persistent. But it, talk to how did you manage that, or maybe you didn't manage it. Well, it was a little difficult. This is one suggestion I can give to any parents out there or family members. My husband and I were not on the same page. I had been going to Al-Anon, which is a support group for families whose children or family members have an addiction or, or um, some kind of um, alcoholism. And I had been going for years, and my husband had not. He had his own way of dealing with it, which was just to keep him home and just to really love him and show him the right way uh, by example and he would snap out of it. He was going through a phase. He thought he was going through a phase. And so, therefore, we argued about it. And Gino could see this. He could see that we weren't um, agreeing on things, so that made it easier for him. You know, like mom and dad aren't agreeing, so, therefore, I can just do what I want. That's, that was the type of thing. But I also have to put some blame on the um, legal system because he was on probation and he would violate probation. So when you violate probation, you have to go before the judge and tell them what you did. And in one instance, he um, took the car when he had lost his license, so he violated probation. So instead of saying, Jesus, kid needs some help, he's um, obviously high, he's doing drugs or something, they just charged him fines. Like, we need $300, or you can't leave the courthouse. So this went on many times. It was just the money. They only wanted the money. They didn't seem to care that this kid might die because of drugs. I approached the probation officer in Westboro, where he was, and she just basically said, it's not our job to do that. We don't find places for them to go to. Well, why don't they? Why isn't that part of the job? Or why can't they just say, we're going to put you in, um, you know, a detox until we can figure out what to do with this kid instead of putting you back on the street? That is what, so what you're I'm saying. Is this for. whole addiction problem has to be addressed from many, many, many on, on many levels and in many different arenas the family, the judicial system, the doctors. I mean, it's a whole Absolutely. combination. Well, I mean, Gino, a whole combination, and he overdosed yeah. and died at the age of thirty. Was he living with? You? What was ha- what at that time? Where was he, and what was happening within the family? Well, he had um, finally. He was in. Um, I was away. I was um, with my sister who was sick in Oregon, and he took a car, and he totaled it. So they put him in jail. That was February. And so they decided to keep him on house arrest with us, which was a big mistake because it's not what you think it is. House arrest is when you 
stay at home, but then you gradually go out every day to groups. He had to go to a sheriff's office in Lowell, Massachusetts, where he met people that had been doing this all their lives, getting into trouble. And he started to go downhill. Before that, he was not using um, heroin or fentanyl. And now he started to use that. He started to use the uh, main line, um, these drugs. And they weren't testing for a lot of the drugs. They weren't testing for fentanyl, which is now killing people because it was too expensive. They didn't test the methadone because they said it does, you don't get high from it. And that's not true because I just know it's not true. I investigated it. And um, he just kept going downhill. And we kept saying, let's get you into a facility. We can't find some place in Massachusetts because there was no beds available. Let's find a place wherever we can. So my sister's a social worker, and she found a place in Florida. And I know that sounds wonderful, Florida, but it was a typical rehab that had a bed. So we arranged everything, and the judge would not let him go. So he had to just stay on house arrest, and um, he was about to get off it. After three months, he was doing fairly well, although I could tell he was still getting high. And I went, now we're up to May, and I went away to my brother's in New Hampshire, and my husband stayed here with him. And he was supposed to start another job the following week, and he, um, his curfew was 10. My husband picked him up at the end of the street at, at about quarter to 10 on a Friday night, and they talked for a while. They watched the game. And at 1 o'clock, my husband went in to just shut the lights out in his room, and he had he died. He had died right away, like three hours before. Hmm. So they tried to revive him, but it was way too late. So what? That, was, that was what happened with Gino. And how many and years his, has it been for you since he died? It's been a year and a half. A year and a half, so... It, that's, yeah, that's so pretty, it's still yeah. pretty new, and, um, you know, it was shocking, yes, it was very shocking. I was, as I said, I was not with my husband. He had to deal with it alone with my daughter, and I we came right home the next morning with my, my brothers and sisters, and um, the only thing, somebody said, how did you feel? How did you feel when you found out he died, and I said, I felt homesick. That was the only thing I could describe it. I felt like the first time I went away to college and I missed my family. I felt homesick. I missed my son. I couldn't even bear the thought that I was never going to see him again. And his wake was huge. There was over 400 people. Um, He was so loved. He was so respected. Um, And I... I didn't want his life to end like that. I didn't want my, his life to end with me putting his sunglasses on in the funeral home, you know, in the casket, because his sunglasses, we just put them on his head because that's where he always kept them. And I said, I don't want to see Gino end like this. And I decided I was going to do something, and I didn't know what. And 
two months later, I started to write um, Hack Drugs from Heaven. Mm-hmm. So that's how you're getting it. through it, because I think most parents or many parents would say, how do you get through the death of your child? And I would, right. and, and I know that parents who have gone through this, there's a lot of, many, there's a lot of guilt associated with it, and, you know, a lot of soul-searching, and um, and then, you know, I, I don't want to say coming to terms with your, you know, the death of your child, but um, in a way, I guess that's, that's what it was. That's, yeah. yeah, that's that's what it is for you, and helping other people. And I, and by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this in the beginning, but some of these proceeds from the sale of your book will go to people that are addicted and need help. Um, right. You know, Kate, I want to ask you another question because you mentioned like earlier that one of your one of your children also was addicted to alcohol. I mean, do you think there's a predisposition in perhaps your family for uh, for being addicted to drugs and alcohol is a drug too, I guess. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it runs in families, just like um, some families are predisposed to um, diabetes or, or cancer. Runs in families. I think addiction definitely runs in families. Uh, fortunately, my son Dan, um, he has been sober for twenty over twenty years, and he just got it. He 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 got the program. He understood it. He he attacked AA viciously. He wanted to get better. He didn't want to stay or be labeled as an alcoholic or as a disease of alcoholism. Gino didn't have that. He didn't have that will. He just it was just too strong. It was just too powerful. He couldn't stop. That's basically what it was. He just could not stop. You know, the thought of stopping forever just would want to make him go out and get high. Yeah. So it was it was really sad because he was a wonderful human being. He he was very loved and I don't say that lightly. Most people I don't think he had any enemies. You know, he loved the street people because he became one. He loved um you know, every class, he loved every class in life. He just was the way he was. So what would you say to other parents who are going through this? Obviously, you're saying a lot in your book, um, I mean, by telling your story, which is really important. Uh, what would but right now, what well, would you would say, say to them? I, yeah. I, I would say um, to get some counseling with a, a drug and alcohol counselor, first of all, if you're married or um, you have a significant other living with that, a person, you, you're very important to try to get on the same page because that is crucial that you're, you know, you're, no, you're not, put it simply, no, you're not going out tonight. No, you're not doing this tonight. And you stay in agreement with that. Um so also, you need to be. Con- are you saying you need to be consistent? Consistent. Whoever, uh, yeah. your partner, your spouse, whomever, are, you're taking care of the, your child. You have to be consistent in the way you treat them. And the, exactly. And yeah. you have to, from the, a very early age, um, just be aware. Be aware that you can pick up signs even as early as kindergarten. I mean, I was a school nurse for a while, and I could tell the kids that were gonna cause trouble, 
they would come down to the nurse's office for no reason just because they needed some attention and they were acting out. What young is that, you know? Um, kids that are starting to cause trouble in second grade or sixth grade or, um, you know, the hurting animals or um, they're starting to drink in, in sixth grade. You know, things like that. Be aware of. Just look at your kids' eyes. Look at their room. If they have a diary, so what? Read it. That's what I say. But, I mean, people don't agree with me with that, but I feel that if you read a diary, you can find out a lot. Uh, well, with you a couple minutes diary. left, I just want to read. Uh, that's, uh, that is, oh, okay. that's, uh, you know, we only have literally two minutes left, so be aware is what you said. And I think also one of the other things that came, you know, after talking with you this morning is that, you know, be you have to be persistent, you have to go with your gut, and you have to, you know, I was thinking about the physician who, I don't know if he, he or she convinced you that your son needed to take more uh, drugs, but you really have to, I guess, be very much, as well as being on the same page with your partner, you really have to really lay down the law, not only with your kid, but also with the professionals, the legal system, the medical system that are dealing with him or her. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Now we have a minute left, so I keep saying that. I want to name. I want to uh, uh, tell you, uh, say the book again because uh, we want people to go out and get it. Hat tricks from heaven: the story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. And the book is by Kate Genovese. Uh, Kate, we can buy the book online, Amazon.com. Um, yeah, can you give us a yeah, give us a website we can go to um, also. Yeah, my website. KateGenoveseBooks.com, and um, yes, you can get it through there or any bookstore you can order it from, or it might be there as well. And um, yeah, it's selling big on Amazon, so you definitely can get it there. Good. So, Thanks so much for being on the show this morning and, and sharing your story. Oh, thank you so much. You I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.